I love singing with God's people. I don't know if there's anything better. You know, when you get these pictures of the throne in the Bible, like in Ezekiel or in Revelation, and they're just singing forever. Holy, holy is he. Um, We'll never get tired of that. Never. So, how's everybody doing? You alive and awake? Got your coffee? They sleeping well? Allergies bugging everybody? Um, it's a beautiful day. We keep trying to dial up good days on Sunday for you. So we're, uh, we're, I think last week was good too. So we'll see what we can do for next week. And uh, But go out there and enjoy it today. It's a beautiful world we live in. So we're going to be continuing in the book of Ephesians. And as we've been walking through it, we just preach through it verse by verse. And as we go through every week, we give a bit of a recap. And, and really Ephesians, it's this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, but it was, as most of these New Testament letters were, it was carried around to other churches in the region and circulated and ended up being collected into what we now have as the book of Ephesians in our Bible. But in the first three chapters, really, Paul is discussing the, really the doctrine of really who we are in Christ now that we have been saved by grace through faith. And we're going to jump back into that in a little bit today. And giving, explaining this great mystery that the, the gospel of Jesus the, and the church of Christ, the body of Christ, is made up of Jews and Gentiles, people who were once separated, that God has broken down the dividing walls, and that we are now one new family in God. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he really goes into how do we, what difference does it make, how do we then go and live these things out? And uh, chapter 4 starts out with, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then he's going to go about explaining what it is that that looks like. And so we're going to continue with that today. We'll be in Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24. But before we dive in there, let's let's pray and, and ask the Lord for help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us, that you resurrect and that you redeem you are able to do what we cannot do, which is save ourselves. And you fill us with new life. You give us your spirit to teach us. You give us the word to um, correct us and uh, show us how to live. And so we just give you thanks for those things and ask for your help as we uh, look into your Bible today. Um, Lord, whoever is here today, whoever is hearing my voice, I pray that you would just help them to rest in you today. Um, We do this every week, that we would just take a moment to pray and that you would ask the Lord to help you. Ask him to teach you something, um, something about him, something about you, uh, to teach you something to refresh your heart and your mind, that you would leave encouraged and empowered to walk in truth today. And Lord, we all bring different things here today. We are all individuals with different struggles and different lives. And, and so I ask that you take a minute to, to pray for the people who are around you. Uh, ask the Lord to teach them. Be in the habit, of course, of thinking about others and praying for them and interceding on their behalf. So do that. Ask the Lord to teach and encourage today. Lord, we lift all these things up to you. And we, uh, we come to you now as we continue to worship you, as we open your word, that you would teach us, um, correct us, Lord Jesus, uh, rebuke us if we need it, and train us up in the righteousness that you have won for us. In Christ's risen name we pray. Amen. Uh, 
All right, so Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 through 24. It says, You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So as we read through these things, obviously all these words and these are all connected to other words in here. So when Paul says you, who's he talking about? He's talking about initially, of course, the Ephesians. Um, and, but also any believer who hears these things. So that includes the, the folks who were around the church in Ephesus and in, in uh, what's now modern-day Turkey, and including you and I today. So the you is any believer, anybody who is in Christ, this applies to. And it says you, however did not come, or it may say, but you did not learn uh, or not come to know Christ in that way. It says you did not come to know. So this is the idea of, okay, you didn't know something, and now you do know something. And what it's doing really is Paul's getting ready to give another command here in, uh, in verses 22 and 23 and 24, and he is removing all the excuse that anybody has. They say, well, why didn't know? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you did. You know, it's like, I don't need to tell, our kids are now old enough, I don't have to tell them you shouldn't lie. Like, they know they're not supposed to lie. And so I don't have to say, well, lying is bad. Like, they know lying is bad, and we lie anyway, but I'm not extending there explaining them to them. Well, sometimes we have to, but that lying is bad. And Paul is telling them, you did not come to know Christ like this. You have no excuse to be living like the Gentiles were, which is what Tripp talked about last week in 17 through 19. You did not come to know Christ that way. Well, what way? Well, remember back in the few verses before that he's talking about, and he's imploring them, don't live like the Gentiles live. Don't, lie, don't live like lost people live. And how do they live? Uh, they live in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, they've lost all sensitivity, they've been given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ like that. And it's interesting because he says you didn't come to know what? Not information, not doctrine, not principles, but a person, Christ. And it one of the bazillion ways that Christianity is different from every other world religion is that we worship a risen person. We worship the person of Christ. We do not worship a philosophy. I do not worship a mindset. I do not worship a set of rules. I do not worship a doctrine, nor do we worship a dogma, nor do we worship a culture or a way of doing things or a routine. It's not had nothing to do with what you do on Sundays or on Saturdays or on Fridays. We worship God and we worship the risen person of Jesus Christ. We came to know Christ, the person. We can know personally the God of the universe. That's the story of the gospel. And we did not just come to know some philosophy or some concept, but Christ. He says, surely... You, oh, when it, says, when it says that way, right? this, this idea, if anybody comes to you and they're like, well, no, it's okay for me to be a believer and walk in the futility of my thinking, darkened in my understanding, separated from God, having lost all sensitivity and giving myself over to every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. No, it's not. 
It's not okay. And Paul says, hey, wake up. That's not how you learn Jesus. You did not learn Jesus that way. Stop walking like that and listen to what I'm going to tell you. So it removes all excuses. Then it says, surely you heard of him and were taught in him. Okay, so the, the, the verbs here for, so in the, uh, the verb tense in the original languages, when it says, surely you, you heard, that's, a, that's an active verb there. So it's this idea of uh, a hearer is responsible to hear. So I speak words, but you're, you have to actively listen, right? So that verb is active. The verb for and were taught, that's a passive verb. So it's this idea of a teacher teaches something. He's actively teaching, and your job is to receive a teaching. So in the process of Christ being communicated to you, you heard of him, you actively listened, and you were taught in him. So not only do you have to hear who Jesus is, but you have to be taught by somebody who knows who Jesus is. That's how the gospel works. A Jesus follower teaches people who don't know Jesus how to follow Jesus. That's discipleship. So surely you have heard of him. You gained information about him. But look at this. And we're taught in him. So that preposition is not a mistake. This idea of being taught in him. Let me ask you a question. Who taught you Jesus? Maybe your parent did, or maybe a, uh, someone at church camp, or a grandparent, or, or a friend, or maybe you heard it in college. You heard it from a gospel ministry in college, or maybe you heard it on the radio, or maybe you just Maybe you were in jail and they gave you Bibles and so you read the Bible and you read through John and you're like, oh my, this is Jesus. I bow my knees to him. That happens. Maybe someone can't. I don't know how you heard or who taught you Jesus, but someone told you. Someone taught you Jesus. And whoever that was, that person is part of the body of Christ. You are not, you're, we are actually, all of us, come to know and are taught Christ by Christ's body. He reveals himself to the lost, and he does it through his body. If you've ever wondered why in the world did God design the gospel to be brought forth into the world by people? Like, oh, that's a really bad plan, Lord. I've asked him that a bunch of times. And the reason is because he receives glory when the gospel goes through his body to the lost. But it's not just some person telling you some information. It is Christ himself revealing himself to you through the body. And the reason that's important is because the veracity of the message has to be maintained. Does that make sense? So the truth of what happened, the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, and, and, and his substitutionary atonement for the sins of mankind, that truth had to be maintained through. And how is it maintained? Because Jesus is doing it. He is the one who carries out the gospel to the lost. Surely you heard of, of him and were taught in him how? In accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So Jesus made some extraordinary statements about himself. Uh, one, of course, claiming and being God. The other, though, is in John 14, 6. He's sitting there with the disciples and he says, I tell you the truth, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No just normal person says those things, unless they're crazy. He says, I am the way. The way to what? I'm the way to salvation. I'm the way to God. I am. But then he says, I am the truth. What? What a weird thing to say. We're going to dig into that in just a second here. But there is this, uh, what's the word for it? 
Um, there's a deep weight to the gospel that we often neglect. There is a deep weight to the reality that the Bible is true. And people get in arguments about truth, and the word truth gets thrown around. And so we're going to clarify the term a little bit here. But what it is that those things mean. So when it says in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to break, we're going to, we're going to take a slight deep dive. Not really a deep dive. It's more like we're getting into the tiny kiddie pool end of like the, the epistemological and ontological uh, philosophical world. So uh, we're not going to dive deep in because I'm not that smart. But the idea of how do we know what we know? How do you know what is true? How do you, what is the basis of all of these things? And if you want to go dive into those waters, if you want to get into uh, ontological discussions and epistemological discussions, go for it. Dive right in. Word of caution, though, don't don't drown in the murky waters. And uh, don't get uh, lost inside your own mind palace. Okay? So uh, I met a lot of really smart people who end up, they're like, you know, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. And I'm like, that's why he says to come to him like a child. Like, get over yourself. And you're not that smart. It's okay. Truth is in Jesus. So diving into that is beautiful. Word of caution, though, once again, don't get lost in the weeds. So, truth, there, you hear people say, uh, your truth is my truth, and subjective truth, and objective truth, and all these things. What do those things mean? I'm going to divide it into a subjective truth and an objective truth. So, subjective truth is something like, um, so, I, like, I want to be a truthful person, okay? I want you to know me, or I want to be known as a truthful person. So, I can never be an objectively truthful person. Why? Because I have lied. Confession time. I've said things that are not true. I have willfully deceived people. So, but I could, I would still want to be called a truthful person. And I think if you were to ask around, I'm a truthful person. If you ask me something, I will tell you the truth. That does not mean that I've always told the truth. So it is objectively, uh, subjectively true that I am a truthful person, but I have lied in the past. So I'm not an objectively truthful person. I'm merely a subjectively truthful person. Another example would be someone goes into a courtroom and you have a witness. Like our justice system is based on this because it's the best we have because nobody is God. And you have somebody come up and you, it's very, very solemn and they swear. Uh, you, I don't know if they still swear in a Bible or not. You swear in a Bible and you would swear to say what? I swear to tell the, whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So you have this witness who swears under, under oath, uh, under risk of, of perjury and jail and all these things that they will tell the truth. So and then somebody goes and asks some questions, and there's this process. Well, you know, they say that, well, this lady was wearing a green dress, but it's really a blue dress. Okay, so the dress is really blue, but they thought it was green. And they say, well, the, the person had a, a, a shotgun, but they really had a, a rifle. Okay, so the truth is that they really had a shotgun, but not, and well, he, they drove away in a it, was like a, it was like a gray minivan. It was really a Navy minivan. Okay, so, so those things are, are true as far as that person understands them to be true because they are subject to the limitations of the witness, okay? So that is the subjective truth. They, or you might ask me a question and say, hey, Brandon, do you know, like, what's the average, like, a flight suite of a, bar, of a barn-laden swallow, whatever the phrase is from the movie. So maybe I don't know what the answer is. And so I say, I just, uh, I don't know, it's like, whatever, it's this number. But maybe I don't know. And so my answer, while truthful, may not be true because it's subject to my own limitations. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me a little bit? So a subjective truth might be, okay, I say this and it's true, but in reality it isn't true because of my ignorance. That happens a lot. 
But people will die on a hill of truth that isn't true because it's based on and uh, it, the foundation of that truth is subject to their own human limitations, which are many. You don't have to live very long to realize I have limitations. If you don't think you have limitations, I mean, in like two seconds, we can disprove that real fast. We'll be like, fine, fly to the moon and back. No? Okay, great. You have limitations. Uh, die and raise yourself from the dead. Yeah, limitations. Great. Um, uh, sleep for four hours and don't be tired the next day. You know, we're very limited. Don't eat for two weeks. Are you hungry? Limited. I mean, it's like we're just full of limits. Subjective truth is founded on the limitations of the truth bearer, okay? When it says, you were taught, uh, excuse me, uh, you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, he is claiming to be the objective truth against which all other truth is measured. So if, if the truth is based on the limitations of the object, in my case, it's subjective because I as an object am limited and I am subjected to all kinds of things. Jesus is subject to nothing and no one. So in, in Colossians, when Paul, who is very smart, by the way, it'd be fun to have a conversation with him. Maybe, maybe it would be. Maybe it wouldn't be fun at all. Um, I think it would be. So he says this in Colossians chapter 1 about Jesus. <clears throat> he is the image. This is 115. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or, or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is subject to nothing and no one. He subjected himself to the will of his Father, but he is subject to no outside anything, period. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, it is objectively true because it is subject to no limitations. Does that make sense? So when he says, the truth that is in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, Jesus is the objective reality against which every experience has to be tested against. Every I'll say this another way. Every subjective experience that we have must be tested against the objective reality of who Christ is. That is not always fun. Because sometimes I want to do something that when I check it against the objective reality of the Word of God, or the objective reality of who Christ is, it doesn't work. And the solution to that problem is my surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, which I don't always want to do. What we often do is we dance around way over here on this subjective truth. I'm like, well, this is true. It's true because I feel it's true. It's great. It's true because I think it's true. It's true because this person said it's true. It's true because it feels good. If you check that against the objective reality of who Jesus is, you, it gets revealed as false. How do you, have you ever held up, you're picking up socks in the morning and, uh, or a pair of pants or whatever, and you think, man, is that black or navy? I'm not sure. And so you hold it up to a light, but it's like it's this weird LED light, and it's a funky color, and you're like, I'm, I'm not really sure. What, what, what light will reveal the true color? Sunlight. You have to hold it up to the pure light of the sun, 
And then you're like, that is black and that is navy. I'm going to put both socks on anyway because I don't care. You know, <laughs> who cares what color your socks are? I've got, uh, I have socks that have Homer Simpson on them because you know what? Who cares? Who cares what socks you wear? Jesus does not care. So um, unless you're wearing socks to hurt somebody's feelings or something, then he cares. But then he cares about the person. We're not going to get into that rabbit trail. But you check things against the light of the sun, okay? And that is what you do in real life. How do I know if this thing is true? And I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail right now, but we live in a world who is totally untethered from what is true. Totally untethered. <laughs> Who's going to tell them if it's not the people that know Jesus? They don't know the light. They're standing there in the dark saying, this sock is blue, and they're like, no, it's black. No, it's green. No, it's white. They're standing in the dark arguing about what color the socks are, and they can't see. We as the church have to bring the light of the gospel into them and say, those socks are blue, dude. Put on a different pair, okay? All right. Where are we? Subjective and objective truth. Why is that important? Because it has to be real. The truth of Jesus must be real or it doesn't matter. It's not just something that some guy made up. It's not just something that some guy gets magical glasses, golden glasses, and magic tablets get revealed to him by some unknown thing, and he reads the magic tablet and writes it down in a book, and so it's true. Talking about Mormonism, by the way. That's not what happened. It's not because some guy gets launched up into all the heavens and goes and has an argument with Moses, and God tells him they're supposed to pray 50 times a day, and he's like, that's a whole lot. And he goes back down, and he says, and Moses is like, hey, Muhammad, by the way, people ain't going to be able to do 50. Trust me. I know people. Go up to God and have a little debate with him. See if you can knock it down. So he goes up to God and he whittles it down to 15 and Moses is like, too much. Goes up and whittles it down and comes back with five. Moses is like, that can probably do five times a day. Boom, let's go write the Quran. That is not what we believe. It's not because somebody wrote something. I'm not trying to offend anybody or hurt anybody's feelings. I'm trying to tell you that the truth matters because it's real or it's not. It can't all be true. It can't all be true. Jesus negates all other realities except himself. And there is no option except to either run from the truth or to run to it. It's the only options we're left with when it comes to Jesus. So it says, when you were taught, what were you taught? You were taught the truth that is in Jesus. So when we were in the, the Holy Land <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, a month ago or whatever, everything about the place. So you go there, if you ever get a chance to go, it's like a trip of a lifetime. I never thought I would go, but we got to go. And you stand there and like you look and it's like, there's Mount Gilboa. That's where Saul was killed. You're like, oh my gosh, that's Mount Nebo. That's where Moses sat and looked into the promised land but couldn't get in. Oh my gosh, that's the Jordan River. Like that's where they crossed over. That's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walked on that. And you walk into the city and you see this wall, this wall base that's like 42 feet long and it's crazy and it's enormous. And that held up the wall that Jesus saw. And, it, and you see a path that Jesus walked on. Like that's where he was died, and that's where he rose from the dead, and this is where it happened, and everything about the place just screams, it's true, it's true, it's true. It's really there. It really happened. Jesus really walked here. He really died for our sins on the cross, and he really rose from the dead, and he really ascended into heaven, and he really sent the Holy Spirit, and he really started this thing called the church. It's real, and it's true. Everything about it screams that, and it matters because if it isn't true, then none of what Paul is going to say can help us. If it's subjectively true, it won't help us because we'll be basing our life on something that can change. So he says, when you were taught, 
with regard to your, you were taught, excuse me, with regard to your former way of life. He just talked about that, just as he did in verse 16, uh, 17, 18, and 19. I encourage you to go back and listen to Trevor's sermon from last week. It was absolutely delightful. Well, not delightful. It was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> it's kind of uh, hurtful. But, uh, but what it looks like to, to not walk in that way anymore. But you were taught with regard to your former way of life to do what? There's a couple verbs here. To put off your old self. And it says, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. So put off is an active verb. Uh, you are the one who is acting on the, you, we are the ones who are supposed to do the putting off. What are we supposed to put off? Our old self, the Bible also calls the flesh. And what do we know about this flesh? It is being corrupted. What's it being corrupted by? By its deceitful desires or by its lustful desires. Or by its uh, deceitful lusts. Okay, so we have this old self. This is that which remains of us in our, it's the, the flesh or the sin nature. You don't have to walk with Jesus very long to know that you've kind of got two dogs in the fight. You've got the sin, you've got the flesh, and you've got the spirit. And whichever dog you feed, that dog is going to grow. And so if you feed the flesh all the time, it's going to get big and strong. If you feed the spirit, the spirit it's going to get big and strong. No, no, don't, I know all metaphors fall apart at some point, so don't go too far down that road. The idea being, there's a battle. You and I face a battle. The world and the devil are our exterior enemies. Uh, the world is like the, the, the environment that we are in, the ocean in which we swim. The devil is a lion that prowls around trying to destroy us. And then the flesh is that which is inside of me, which wars against my submission to the Lord Jesus. And when he says it is being, that old self is being corrupted. So that word means to, um, to, to rot or to wither. And it's this picture of something that is uh, in active corruption on the way to uh, its ultimate destruction. So the flesh is being corrupted by, that, that verb is an active verb. It is continually being corrupted. If you ever know why, you can see a dirty old man. It's because old men, if they don't come to Jesus, their flesh just gets worse. Doesn't get better. Ask someone who's been walking with Jesus for 50 years. Is your flesh better now than it was no, it's worse. It's stronger. It's stinkier. It's grosser. And the picture that came to mind for me was like a zombie, a nasty, rotting zombie. And the, he's like walking, doing what zombies do, but he is corrupted. And like fingers are falling off, his jaw falls off, and he's like, but he's still walking. But parts are falling off, and he's rotten, and he is putrid, and that is the flesh. The flesh and our old self is a putrid pile of corrupted nastiness. And it only gets worse. If you ever wonder how could I possibly be tempted to do that kind of thing, it's because your old self is being corrupted by its deceitful desires or by its, uh, its deceitful lusts. And it's this picture, too, of deceitful desires. It's like, it's not just the desires that are bad. It's that the deceit feeds the hunger of our flesh. When I hear a lie, I believe a lie. Well, I, pornography will satisfy my, my sexual needs. I hear a lie that this opioid will, will, will solve my, uh, the problem that I have of dealing with anxiety. Oh, well, this drug will help me not, not be this way. Or uh, this activity will help me find value. Or I'll get, if I get this person to like me, then I'll have uh, a, a true a place in the world. If I can make this much money, then I will have joy and I won't have to worry anymore. If I can get past this illness, if I can just get healthy, then everything will be fine. These are all lies. If I can wear those clothes, then these people will accept me. 
If I can wear these shoes, then I'll finally have value in society's eyes. If this person can get elected, all of our problems will go away. These are all lies. They are all deceitful desires. And our flesh feeds on the deceit. When we hear the deceit and we believe it because we've forgotten to check it against the truth of Jesus, it grows. And the flesh gets corrupted by deceit. It gets corrupted by lies. It started, sin began with a lie. Remember? Adam and Eve were sitting in the garden. Eve's sitting there eating a mango. And Satan comes up with a snake. Is a snake. And he's like, Adam's standing right there being a doofus. And Eve's like, and uh, the Satan goes, the serpent says, hey, what you doing there? I mean, uh, fruit, I got a better fruit. It's right over here. Oh, well, God said not to eat from that tree. He's like, did he? Did he really? And the whole thing began with a lie. And I've said it once, I'll say it a bazillion times, that the great lie of humanity is this, that God doesn't love you. And everyone believes that lie at some point. And when you believe that God doesn't love you, you won't believe that his way is right because you don't trust him. So when you believe that God loves you, then you trust him, and then he says, go this way, and you can go that way, and you'll find it full of life. But the great lie is that he doesn't love you. The great truth is that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have the cross. We have it up here on purpose because we want to remind ourselves of God's love for us. So that's the evil way, the, uh, the way of corruption, the old self. Supposed to put it off. That verb is in the, the aorist tense, which means it's like a little snippet of a continuing process. So you've got this, this process that is ongoing, and it's like a little slice. It's like uh, somebody watching a brick being put into a building. You know that there's lots of bricks being put into the building, but all you see is this verb. Boom. Put down a brick. That's this tense, and it's active. It's a, it is a, a snapshot of an ongoing process. You will have to put off the old self every single day of your life. And then what happens? It says, to be made new in the attitude of your minds or in the, in the spirit of your thinking. To be made new, this verb is passive. You don't do that. Who does that? Well, God does that. As a picture, I want to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. So if you don't read the Minor Prophets a lot, you're really missing out. They are great. They require a little bit of study because sometimes it's hard to wrap your brain around it. But Zechariah chapter 3, he's, uh, you don't have to turn to it. You're welcome to. I'm on page 838 of my Bible. So if you turn to Matthew and head back a couple books, you'll, you'll hit it. Zechariah. So Zechariah 3, uh, verse 1. And it says, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, at his right side, accusing him. So you got the high priest of God standing there and before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is standing there. And what's Satan doing? Accusing him. That's what he does. He's the accuser. He's a big, fat jerk. So he's accusing him, which is real easy. It's real easy to accuse humans of sinning. When the, when the devil is coming after me, everything he says is right, right? What he's saying is, it's like, yes, I'm a sinner. And he can just point him out all the time, which is what he's doing to Joshua, accusing him. And the Lord says to Satan, while Satan's accusing Joshua of his sin, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. This is Yahweh. The Lord Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. It is not, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? What a picture of redemption. 
Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. The word filthy is, is the word that means covered in excrement. He was dressed in excrement-covered clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. And then he said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The clean turban, the turban was what the priest wore to do his priestly duties. Joshua could not do his job dressed in filthy clothes. Couldn't. He could not execute the office of the high priest dressed in excrement. He was unclean, and the law forbade him from doing it. Does God come up and say, all right, Joshua, clean yourself up. Get, take that stuff off. Go take a shower. Put on some good clothes. Do your job. Is that what the Lord says? No. What does he do? He rebukes Satan. He rebukes the accuser. And then he says, I have taken away your sin. And it says, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Whoever was whoever standing before him, angels, I guess, I don't know. They take off Joshua's clothes. All Joshua stands there and is covered in excrement. And God makes him clean. Takes off his dirty clothes. Bathes him. Doesn't say bathe him, but you know, God's not going to cover you and stuff and then put clean clothes on you. That makes no sense. So, especially for a Jew. So he takes off his filthy stuff put off. He gets made clean to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And then he puts on rich garments and a clean turban so that Joshua can do his job, which is to intercede for and minister to the people of Jerusalem. This is what God does for us. He makes us new in the attitude of our minds. What does it look like? In real life, that's what we're going to get into in just a second. But he is the one who renews. The word for new there is the word for, uh, for like to make young again. So to take, and I'm only 46, but I'm feeling aged a little bit. And so like the idea of being, you know, there's a lot of great things about youth. A lot of not great things because you don't know what you're doing. But there's a lot of great things like you're not sore when you wake up in the morning. Your back doesn't really hurt. So, but and like you can bend down and not hurt your knee or something. But the idea of being made young again flexible, being made fresh and new in what? The attitude of my mind. And if you've ever done this, if you've ever seen your sin and repented, say, God, wash me with your word, then you've experienced this, a new attitude. And then in verse 24, what do you do? You put on the new self. Well, who's the new self? If you go around and ask people, who are you? I dare you to do that. Next time you're at dinner, Somewhere, uh, your wait- waitress is there, waiter or whatever. And you're like, uh, always ask your waiter's name, by the way. Lots of people don't know their name, just ask them their name and then tip them well. Um, it's all God's money, anyway, so give some to the kids. So you give the waiter, waitress, and just say, you know, hey, uh, Charlene, like, uh, what's your name? Uh, no, shoot, you would know her name if you said Charlene. Anyway, hey, hey, what's your name? And they're like, oh, my name's Charlene. Hey, Charlene, thanks for serving us for food. I really appreciate you. And then she, uh, you know, brings your drinks and your chips and queso or whatever, and you say, hey, um, I got a weird question for you. Um, if I was to ask you, like, who are you? What would you say? Um, just try it. Just see it. You might ruin somebody's day. I don't know. Ask people questions. Just randomly ask people questions in public. Just go for it. At the checkout line, you can just say, hey, thank you for, for selling me stuff at Target. I appreciate it. No, I don't want the Target card, but I'm great. I'm going to use this. Uh, I just want you to know that, like, you, God made you and he loves you and you're precious to me. 
It might make him feel weird. I don't really care. You know what? The world is not going in there and saying, you are precious in my sight. You are worth something. You are valuable. You are worthy. You are loved. Just be the person, like, to, to heck with reason. Go out there and just love people boldly and crazily. I'm totally getting off topic. But anyway, so, so who are you? Who is this new self? Well, we're not going back and read it all. But if you go back in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, and go all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, that entire section is about your identity in Christ. This is who you are. I'm going to skip through a bit of it here. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in him. We are blameless and holy in his sight. We are predestined to be adopted as his sons. He's freely given uh, us this this grace. We We have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness in sins. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. We were chosen, having been predestined according to his plan. Uh, we, are, we were the first to hope in Christ for the praise of his glory. We've been included with Christ. Uh, we have been marked with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. He is our deposit, guaranteeing our redemption. Uh, we can go to him. He's our father. He is our, uh, we are his children. Uh, the eyes of our heart can be enlightened. We can have true hope. We have a glorious inheritance. Uh, his incomparably great power toward us who believe is the power that works within us. This is who we are. We were dead in our transgressions and sins in 2.1, but he has made us new. We were objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in his mercy, made us alive. You are alive in Christ. And he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. In order that the ages to come, he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace. We've been saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's the grace of God. And we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, his artwork. Created what? In Christ Jesus to do good works. We are good work doers. This is just some of who the new self is. Doesn't that sound better than the rotting zombie me? Yes, it's like incomprehensibly better. You see the contrast? We contrast futility, darkened thinking, ignorance, hardened hearts, insensitivity, turning yourself over to all kinds of continual lust for more with the reality and the truth of who Jesus is. And then the new life that we have in him. Not only do we have a new self, but that new self has been created to be like God. Do you know that? Your new self in Christ was created to be like God. God. I mean, wow. God is so good. We were created to be good. He says he is righteous and holy. You are righteous and holy in Jesus. You know that? You are righteous and holy in him. So what does it look like in real life? One, I want you to embrace the process, okay? That Paul is lying out, laying out a process of the Christian life. There's a process that we walk in. Not, we're not just walking around saying, let's just make stuff up and what it means to be a believer. We read the Bible. The Bible tells us what to do. And Paul tells us what to do. And that process is first to put off the old self. You have to know what, if you're just paying attention, the old self becomes real evident. Uh, mine popped up this week when I got in an argument with a 10-year-old who was my child. Uh, it's dumb. All of a sudden, I'm mad at a child. I'm like, oh my gosh, it just... Uh. Now, this verse, of course, doesn't, even though I just wrote a sermon about it, that just popped in my head because I'm a fool sometimes. So you realize, you have to recognize the old self is there. Is what's going on, is what I'm doing, is my attitude stinky and gross and rotting? That's the old self. 
is it? And Paul's going to go into it in just a minute uh, later on about this bitterness and anger. And anytime you see those things, that's the old self, okay? If you don't know what those things are, just ask somebody who loves you. They will probably tell you. What are the, how do you know when I'm walking in the flesh? How do you know when I'm walking in my old self? And you have to say no to those things. If you're bitter, if you're angry, if you're struggling with those things, you have to say no to the bitterness and the anger. You have to say no to the, uh, to the, the lies that the devil is telling you. You have to say no. That's what it means to put off the old self. It's like taking off a nasty garment and you lay it down. And then you go take a shower. You walk into the shower of the word of God. You say, Lord, make me clean. Wash me. That's, you remember the promise in 1 John 1, 9? Where he says, uh, I'm just going to read it here. I have it in my brain, but I feel like I'm remembering a part wrong. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's verse 8. Verse 9. But if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the act of confession and repentance in the life of a believer. Lord, I confess my sin to you. I repent. I turn away from it. Now wash me from all unrighteousness. And then you put on who you really are in the new self. You engage, you embrace that process, and you engage in it every single day. Uh, on Friday, we uh, celebrated the life of a guy named Mike Miserly, who was, uh, he was a longtime friend of our family. He led a Bible study in my parents' house for decades. He was a pastor at a church I grew up at. He was my mentor. He was one of my dad's dearest friends. My dad called him rabbi all the time. And Mike was just a wonder. He was he was not some screamingly gifted uh, preacher that you see on TV. He was not, um, he was not handsome. Uh, he was not overwhelmingly gifted or talented. He was not uh, the best speaker I've ever heard. He's probably one of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard. But he was, when you think of like awesome pastor, you wouldn't, if you saw Mike, you wouldn't think awesome pastor, okay? He considered himself an old pastor. He's just trying to finish well, and finish well he did. There were almost 800 people at his funeral. And it's just people that he loved. That's it. And Mike was not amazing. We loved him. But Mike was, Mike was obedient. And in his obedience, he put off the old self. He was renewed in the attitude of his mind. And he put on the new self. And he did it every single day. Day after day after day after day. It wasn't about how great he was. It is not about how great or really bad you are. It's about how marvelous Jesus is because he is the way and the truth and the life. Our job is to submit to the process. And Mike just submitted to the process. And the result of one man who would submit to the process of Christ sanctifying him was hundreds, thousands of people whose lives are changed. If you extrapolate all those lives that he affected and the lives that they affected and the lives that they will affect, hundreds of thousands of people's lives will be different because one person would walk with Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. Not because you're great, because you know what you're not. Not because I'm great, because I'm worse than you. So just walk with Jesus. That's it. You put off the old self. You allow Christ to renew the attitude of your minds, and then you put on the new self. You, you walk like who you are. So I want to just kind of challenge you to just make a decision. I don't know what you've got going on in your heart because every time I ask everybody on Sunday, is how are you doing? You're just fine. And you call me later and maybe you're not fine. So, so great. By the way, if you're not fine, please just call me or email me. We'll work it out. We'll go to coffee. We'll get a 
It'll all be okay. But if there's a sin that's got you pinned down, Christ has given you victory over it. You can put off your old self. If you're like a zombie walking around, rotting and dropping things everywhere, you can put that off. Why can you put it off? Because that's not who you are. You're like wearing a zombie suit. So take off the suit. Say no to something that's hurting you. Say no to something that's hurting someone else. And then you say yes to something. If you're around my wife at all, you hear the phrase, every no is a yes to something else, which is true. Every yes is also a no to something else. So what will you say no to this week in order to say yes to the real life in Jesus? What will you say yes to this week in order to say no to the flesh that is destroying everything in around you and it's just constantly growing and constantly getting worse and constantly being corrupted by its deceitful desires? What will you say no to and what will you say yes to? And what is God calling you to do today? And so we're going to take a moment. We're going to have a few moments to actually have a quiet time to do that. And then I want to challenge you with one more thing today, which is that when you leave here, wherever you go to lunch, whatever you eat, Whoever you're sitting with, if you're sitting by yourself, um, come over to our house. We have plenty of food. But if you're going somewhere else and you're going to be with humans, talk with them about what you decided today. Talk to them about your struggle. Say, you know what? I've been struggling. My old self has been popping up like this. I need to be, can you pray for me? How have you been struggling? How can I, how can I help you? How can I walk with you as you do this? Do you see the incredible, beautiful power in that? To come up with a person and say, man, we struggle with the same thing. Oh, what? You struggle with getting angry with your kids? I do too. You struggle with, you know, not being able to plan very well? I do too. You struggle with pornography? I do too. You struggle with, again, uh, gossiping about people at work? I do too. You struggle with not being disciplined in your finances? I, oh my gosh, there's a long list of things you struggle with. Guess what? Someone in here struggles with it too. And they probably live in your house. So talk with them. Talk about what you've learned today, and let's spend a few moments praying. Heavenly Father, we just come to you today, and we're so grateful for your love that we can come and rest in it, that it is not a love that uh, makes us afraid. It's a love that draws us in. It's a love that says you are treasured. It is not a love that we have to make everything right to walk into, but it is a love that's demonstrated to us by the cross of Jesus by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and by this promise that we can put off the old self, that we can be renewed in the attitude of our mind, and that we can put on the new self, Lord Jesus. These are promises from your word that we cling to. So we want to take just a moment, Lord, in a world that is so crazy, busy, and noisy. We just want to grab some of the shalom that you've won for us and grab some of the peace that you have given us and to commit just a few minutes, Lord, to reflection, to listening to your spirit. And so I'm just going to guide us a little bit in that, that, Lord, as, you, as we sit here, that you would just convict each of us of what you want us to say no to this week and what you want us to say yes to. Convict us of that, O oh Lord. And Lord, the knowledge of that is not any good unless we do something with it. The knowledge of the gospel does nothing unless we believe, unless we have faith 
And so help us, Lord, to believe that what you said is true, that what you want us to say no to and that what you want us to say yes to are objectively true. Lord, give us the faith that we need to trust you, to turn to your word, the courage to stand up and open our Bibles and spend time in it, to listen to your voice, to listen to your rebuke, to listen to your correction, to listen to your great joy as you sing over us, Lord, as you uh, call us to yourself, as you teach us and train us up in righteousness, Lord. Would we take what you are teaching us now and put it into practice? Would you teach us to put off the old self, to be renewed in um, the attitude of our minds by your spirit, that we would submit to your work in that, and that we would put on the new self, that we would walk forward, Lord, in who we truly are. In Christ's risen name, we pray these things. Amen. by him, to be equipped, to be convicted, all of the things that we need to put off the old self, put on the new self that he has provided for us, humbly come before him. yourself this question. choices we make. 
So leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Jesus is say 
Hallelujah. Oh, what a Savior he is. He's calling you to himself to put off the old self, to be renewed in your mind by his spirit, and then to put on the new self that he won for you and to walk in the righteousness and holiness that are yours. So go in.